All right, good morning. No, good Jesus, not the morning, it's the afternoon. Um, welcome to an impromptu um, geopolitical pivot podcast um, episode. This is the third this week, which I've never done before. Um, but it may become a regular occurrence uh, with just so much stuff going on in the world. Um, today I have our uh, one of our original co-hosts, uh, Dan. Uh, he's here with me. Uh, this is not going to be a long video per se, about 30 minutes though, but um, uh, today we're really talking about not only the internal um, situation in Russia that's ongoing, um, but also the um, allegations regarding false flag operations regarding uh, bioweapons and nuclear facilities, um, as well as the circulating letter regarding the FSB. Um, and the, if I remember correctly, uh, Dan, you can, and this is when you can come in on this, that the Putin had essentially put, I guess, their chief of the FSB on house arrest. Is that correct? Yes. So it's the, uh, the I believe, the fifth center chief. By the way, thank you for having me here today. I'm really excited to uh, get the chance to come on and talk a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to start things off with the, ground, uh, the ball rolling. Um, yeah, I mean, the arrest of a major section chief um, by uh, Putin's uh, personal security uh, is a very, very interesting internal step that we're seeing right now. Um, and there have been a lot of different interpretations about what this means. Um, big picture, but also what this means for you know Putin's steps forward from this point. Um, I've seen some people insisting that he is now trying to find an off-ramp for himself, potentially by blaming the analysts responsible for the analysts responsible for the assessment that the Ukrainian people will be interested in an invasion. Um, you know, others are saying that this is an attempt at stifling a palace coup in the making. Um, I've also seen uh, reports coming from some of the original sources of the FSB letters that have been coming out. Now, I believe there's a third letter that's come out after the first and the second, which came out last week. These are particularly interesting because I think that if these letters are to be believed, if we are to understand that they are actually coming from a well-placed analyst within the FSB, um, who does have this contact to someone in a human rights organization who wants to get the word out about what's really going on, um, it paints a very interesting picture about the calculus that went into this operation, as well as the calculus that is going into trying to resolve it at this point. Um, but according to that source as well, the arrest of uh, these high-ranking individuals within the, the FSB itself was not just to deal with a perceived failure in Ukraine. It was actually a direct attempt to try to silence the letter writer himself. Um, and to my knowledge, at this point, the letter writer has not actually been silenced. They have not got him. So that is at least a bit of good news with so much bad news lately. Yeah, it makes sense. So the, the particular letter writer, I guess would be sort of like an equivalent to like a whistleblower essentially um or any other type of i guess an individual that's on the inside that kind of i guess wants the i guess the, the world to know kind of what's what putin is essentially trying to commit uh within in russia to what what do you think possibly the end goal could be for for putin in this type of lockdown yeah, I mean, I think that that is the, that's one of the main objectives that the letter writer is trying to convey. Um, and I think that the big point that they went over in both of the letters was the fact that this operation was um, not only conducted without a lot of the support or really the knowledge of a lot of people within the system itself, 
uh, I think it was the very first letter that insisted that the reports that Putin was receiving about a favorable situation in Ukraine were primarily because he had taken steps to remove people who submitted reports that were not favorable, um, and that those individuals who were under the uh, were under the perception that the any kind of operation in Ukraine was purely a hypothetical. They were more than willing to write very positive reviews of what that hypothetical operation might look like. Now that it is actually being put into practice, many of them are uh, sort of backing away from that assessment. They're saying, "Well, this was all hypothetical. This was all what we had suspected would occur in the best of scenarios." And mm-hmm. you, we know you like to hear the best of scenarios. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's interesting that there's definitely some heads rolling at the FSB right now. Um, and I think that the, uh, the the writer of this letter really wants to convey to the world that um, not only were the Russian people not interested or even aware that this invasion was going to happen, but many of the soldiers and many even people within the Siloviki were not aware that this was going to happen. Um, and now they're just scrambling, trying to figure out how to handle it. No, that makes sense. Um, there's a book um, that came out that I'm currently reading now, actually. Um, it came out in... Uh, let me just get the date really quickly if I can find it um, I think this came out like 2000 this came out 2019 uh, by Mark Galliotti and is talking about we need to talk about Putin how the West gets him wrong and essentially what he calls um, Putin's um, literally in the first chapter his kind of political establishment is uh, an adhocracy um, and he, and I'm just going to quote um, his one of his paragraphs, where he said, "Agencies overlap and compete. Formal chains of command are less important than personal relationships. Favorites rise and fall, and status and power are defined more by service to the needs of the Kremlin than by any formal institutional or <clears throat> excuse me, social identity. And this adhocracy, your job title, or even whether you are officially an employee of the state." does not necessarily matter um he brings up kind of what happened with billionaire mikhail um was it korokovsky korokovsky um, yeah and how essentially you know he was one of the richest you know men in in uh, russia or usually in the world and the moment that putin didn't like him um because of how essentially he gained his wealth and essentially what him and other oligarchs were essentially um, able to achieve and do um, in the, the, the mid to late 90s, um, it was kind of an example of what eventually we know now, how in Putin's, um, I guess, Russia, where your credentials and what you've done doesn't really mean anything. Um, if you're seen of use, um, if your ideas go in alignment with what the overall arching goal is for of Putin himself, not Russia, the state per se, but Putin himself, then that's when you're brought into the fray until your ideas are no longer seen as adequate for Putin's strategic view of himself, his position in Russia, and Russia's, his, in his view of Russia and the world, then you are simply um, dismissed. I mean, we have to bring up um, one person that you can't stand. Uh, Vladislav Circle. Vladislav Circle. <laughs> yeah. I knew what you were going to say before you said it because I actually, uh, I, when writing about Sirkov in the past, I've frequently cited Galliani. I, lo- I love his writing, I love his work. Um, and I believe that it was from a piece by Galliani that I first learned that um, 
there are some uh, there's some suspicion that part of the reason Yukotakovsky was one of the first people targeted by the Putin administration wasn't necessarily because of who he was to Putin, but because Putin, who had just been appointed as you know the president, he had mm-hmm. just uh, gotten this position of power, he had just pulled off the Moscow apartment bombings, um, and you know let's let's have no illusions about how those happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, there's 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 enough evidence of why those happened, how those happened. I mean, you know, that's it's at this point it's no longer a conspiracy theory, but. Um, Kudakovsky himself was actually a previous co-worker of Serkov. In fact, Serkov was eventually slated to, or was believed he was slated, to be uh, named as a partner at Kudakovsky's um, corporation. And then he was rejected of that opportunity. So he went to work for the Russian government. And mm-hmm. literally two or three years right after that happened, uh, Kudakovsky was one of the first people who was jailed. And this was right after Serkov became the chief advisor mm-hmm. to President Putin. Which and he sense. stayed in that position for years, years. so many years. Yeah. Um, I mean, he stayed in that position, and that's the interesting thing, because he stayed in that position until, I want to say, around 2013, I think it was, the first time he disappeared. Um, right, he disappeared, and, and then yeah. somehow reappeared when the whole Donbass thing happened, and then yeah. and then he disappeared again. <laughs> well, there, there's allegations, actually. There's, you know, there's some allegations that he actually was on the phone, or not on the phone, but in person with Putin, right before the operation began in command in the Donbass. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Russia had intelligence services operating there for a long time throughout mm-hmm. the Euromaidan, um, and allegedly Serkov had also been helping to oversee what some of those forces were doing. Mm-hmm. But it was Serkov, allegedly, who convinced Putin to send the troops in initially, saying, if you don't move now to seize Ukraine, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how long these intelligence forces are going to be able to um, maintain a government that's going to be pro-Russia. And if you lose Ukraine, it's going to be a really big blow. I mean, that makes sense, though, because um, just recently, you know, they had kidnapped that Ukrainian mayor. Um, yeah. And then they installed um, a new mayor um so it's kind of like this this notion according to this book um in russian ponyatia or um personal relationships um where like like we just alluded to where um you're there's like the sense of unspoken understandings um and personal and like you know personal relationships where you know I gave you the strategic goal, but I'm not going to give you explicit ways on how to do it. As long as you do yep. it, um, exactly. that's all that matters. Exactly. And if you it don't gives, do it, you're, then you're discarded. It gives Putin a sort of plausible deniability. Right. Um, while it also gives him, you know, with his own people, the ability to, uh, you know, when an operation just goes completely off the walls, he can sort of look to his people and say, well, someone else planned this, someone right. else executed it. I just gave him permission. Right. It's not my fault that they were a moron about it. You know, you can say that about scribble poisonings. You can say that about the attempted assassination of Navalny. Um, I believe um, there was another individual, however, and I, I was always very suspicious about this um, when the scribble poisoning happened because it was such a large profile, um, you know, violent uh, assassination attempt. And it was all over the news. And I, I, I was wondering, you know, because every time, it seemed like every time Russia had done some kind of really large profile action like that, there was some kind of um, smaller profile action that was more politically significant. Mm-hmm. You know, Skripal was no longer an intelligence threat. He was an old spy. Killing him would have sent a message, but it wouldn't have really accomplished any geopolitical goals. That right. being said, there was an individual, uh, I believe... 
let me see if I can check his name. Was it, um, it was Nikolai something. Glushkov? Nikolai Glush... Yep, yeah. So Nikolai Glushkov. Um, he was the deputy director of Aeroflot, and he was involved in a lawsuit in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually going to be brought in, I believe, as a witness to talk about the fact that the Russian special services have been using Aeroflot for years to smuggle in intelligence personnel and weapons into countries where they were very much not supposed to have them. Mm-hmm. And right around the time he was supposed to go and appear for this trial, he was murdered in his home. Um, it is still a mystery as to how he died, and this happened within a couple of days of the scribble poisoning, which was still mm-hmm. all over the news. Um, you know, it was being talked about by everybody. Nobody talked about Nikolai Glushkov. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy who was involved in a lawsuit that would have exposed a legitimate operational and uh, tradecraft capability of the Russian intelligence services. Um, and that kind of, you know, that is in line very much with the uh, foreign strategic um, objectives, but also the sort of traditional Russian uh, modus operandi when it comes to these things um, mm-hmm. that Putin has very much co-opted for his own use. Uh, you know, you, you make a bang before you clap. You make a really loud noise somewhere else to draw that attention away before right. you conduct that operation that's actually politically significant to you. And you don't care about the consequences because you've got, as, as you discussed, the plausible deniability or in some way the implausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows we did it, but you can't prove it. Right. But I mean, that also goes into, again, what Galeotti stated that, um, that Putin, I'm going to quote him again, um, that Putin is an opportunist. He has a sense of what constitutes a win, but no predetermined path towards it. He relies on quickly seizing any advantage he sees rather than on a careful strategy. Um, Galeotti goes on to say, many apparent short-term successes prove to be long-term liabilities, having been uh, neither thought through beforehand or followed through afterwards. He is aware that overall, when united, the West is so much more powerful than Russia, with 20 times its gross domestic product, six times the population, and more than three times as many troops. But he's waiting for us to make a mistake and give him what looks like a good chance to strike. So if we can put, I mean, even the current situation with Ukraine, I mean, this was a development, we talked about this yesterday. This has been an ongoing development since 2014 when they seized Crimea. Um, And unfortunately, I was talking to a good friend of mine earlier today, um, the Western media is just as much as to fault for the aggrandizing of Putin's ego, um, and the you know the the boogeyman known as Vladimir Putin, where if one thing goes wrong, it automatically has to be because oh because Putin did this, Putin did that. It's not because he's playing chess. Yeah. It's not because he's playing checkers. It's literally because we've essentially. I mean, it started as soon as he became interim president. Nobody knew who he was. And so with the West, as much, you know, as powerful as it is and how it's able to mold perceptions, conduct information warfare, in this case with Putin, we, we as in the Western media have gotten him completely all wrong. I mean, George W. Bush did that famous quote. He said, I looked this man in the eye to stare in his soul and I you know, essentially said that he's a good man. Yes. Those types of um, comments, publicity... Um, and even notoriety for someone such as Putin, who I mean, essentially came from nothing, and who's seizing power and riches. And if you want riches, that comes with power. And if you want power, then that's to accumulate riches. It went to his head over time, 
And once yeah. he felt the need of invincibility, which essentially he did become invincible to a particular degree, when he what he did in 2008 in Georgia, uh, what he did in 2014, undermining elections throughout Europe and the United States, um, it coming out that essentially he didn't just have a boring job in Dresden. Um, and part of his job was to essentially incite literal instability. Um, now, as he was talking about, were well, short-term successes. So you can declare, you know, Georgia being a short-term success. You can declare taking Crimea as a short-term success. But then let's look at the long-term liabilities. You now have Finland, Sweden, and Kosovo thinking about NATO admission. You had Georgia put in e or seeking EU membership two weeks in advance. They were going to try to do it anyway. You have now Ukraine pushing now for EU membership. On top of that, you have the Russian ruble dropping to 92 parts, uh, to levels not seen since the, the mid-90s financial crisis. Even worse than that in some, in some capacities. Um, in addition to that, you literally have now, I won't call it a stalemate per se on a conventional level in Ukraine, but now we're seeing, and I said this yesterday and even this morning, that we're now seeing the ugly transition to unconventional urban warfare and that's yes. going to be bloody it's going to be nasty it's going to be ruthless in this sense um i and i was talking to a good friend of mine on the phone today that um essentially what we're seeing are two pairs and then people don't like people don't see ukraine as a pair to russia but there's a lot there are a lot of let's say military officials in ukraine who served during the times of the Soviet Union, they aren't yeah, all I would dead. say that with the with a lot of the as with Ukraine defending and with the amount of Western back support that they're getting, and with Western um, intelligence supporting as well, uh, Ukraine absolutely stands up as a peer competitor to the amount of forces that Russia absolutely. has allayed right now. You know, if Putin if Putin was willing, because I think that part of what people don't realize right now, there's I've seen a lot of mixed assessments, mostly from people who um, seem to not really know a whole lot about um, the previous uh, capabilities of Russian military mm -hmm. forces, mm -hmm. which isn't to say that they're overly capable, but we shouldn't overestimate or underestimate their capabilities. You know, most of the force is not modernized, a section yeah. of it is. Most of the force is not well trained, a section of it is. And most of the force is not well augmented, a section of it is. Mm -hmm. Out of all of that, the biggest problem is inability to lead from the bottom. You know, soldiers mm -hmm. are taught to rely on the command and control of officers rather than being able to take initiative themselves mm -hmm. and many of those soldiers when they are not when they're in a position where they sort of have to take initiative um you know if especially in a situation where they are in a war that they did not expect and did not want to be in they're going to go off the rails you know right. they're going to uh they're going to like start robbing stores and like stealing liquor and selling the alcohol uh, selling the fuel out of their tanks mm -hmm. because they don't realize they're going on a campaign rather than a military exercise in order to get rations of moonshine mm -hmm. um and I think that that, you know, that sort of gives us a good segue into, um, you know, a couple of uh, really significant points to talk about. First of which is that people right now are doing one of two things. Sometimes, somehow, they're doing both at the same time mm -hmm. when it comes to the Ukraine conflict. They're underestimating Russia and overestimating Russia. And they're underestimating and overestimating Vladimir Putin. You know, it's like this notion that either he's a chess master, mm -hmm. who, you know, everything is on purpose, everything is intentional or he is some kind of a buffoon who has no idea what he's doing. And really, it's somewhere very much in between there. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is not, he was not an exceptional intelligence officer. He was 
an intelligence officer, which is to say, generally, he was better at running intelligence operations than the average person is going to be. Um, and he treats his presidency more as someone who is running an intelligence agency mm-hmm. than someone who is running a country. Right. Uh, he has he much more enjoys running covert operations, um, you know, busting up allegedly busting up corruption within his own country. But often that manifests actually as allowing corruption for the people he likes. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially doing this kind of mock rule. Right. Um, he really wants to have this strong man image. He's a total narcissist, and you know, I mean, he definitely does have some of these capabilities. But part of what makes any intelligence officer good, people don't really realize this about Putin. I think as much as they should. Uh, what makes any intelligence officer good at what they do is the ability to surround themselves with people who are better at what they do. Right. And that's something that, while he has done a very good job of keeping the people around him in fear and at each other's throats, he also, you know, they say uh, capitalism always leads to innovation. Well, I would say that the circle around Putin is the exact epitome of that. I mean, he yeah. has created a situation where everyone around him has to compete, has to innovate, has to be the best of the best. If you do not consistently deliver victories, then you're out. If you do, and when you're out, you no longer have safety. So these are people who are effectively fighting for their life to innovate in order to stay at the very top and close to him and continue to provide him with victories. And Um, one of them is Lavrov. And from that, that you're getting, um, you know, the 2016 election. You're Mm -hmm. getting 27 European countries in the years leading up to 2016. You're getting... um, you know, a whole bunch of donors across, or people across the spectrum of American politics who now have money in uncomfortable places in Russia that they, you know, they don't really want to talk about that. And there are certain people who would love to talk about that, but uh, the Russian infrastructure is generally being very good about ensuring they don't have to talk about that as long as they continue to provide what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, They're really good at running illegal officers inside U.S. and inside Western nations, but again, penetrating democracies with illegal operations officers is not the most difficult thing to do in the world. Um, They're great at electronic warfare. They're pretty good at space war, Um, or I shouldn't say space war because we haven't technically had a space war Mm -hmm. yet. Their capabilities, you know, their ASAT systems are pretty effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the hypersonic missiles, if we're to uh, believe and interpret the data that we've seen at this point, those represent a real threat. The status six weapon system that represents a real threat. The Russian ground forces, for the most part, not that much of a threat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got some Spetsnaz units, which when they get their, um, you know, advanced armor systems, their optical capabilities, their electronic warfare, and you know, the hand-to-hand combat training that you get, those guys are pretty formidable if they were to go up against certain forces. But right now, mostly what we're seeing in Ukraine is conscripts, and mostly what we're seeing and conscripts and mercenaries with a handful of special operations officers who were dropped into situations that were pretty much already lost and were gunned down. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you could drop anyone into a situation like that, and most of the time you're not going to secure a win. So it doesn't doesn't provide a very good gauge of what those smaller forces within the Russian military are capable of. Um, But the other issue is that people are sort of looking at this conflict to say, you know, Putin is going all in trying to invade Ukraine, much in the same way that, you know, Germany was fighting at the very end of World War II to defend Berlin. First of all, Russia's attacking, not defending. Mm-hmm. Most of the Russian armed forces and reserve forces are not currently in play in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. As far, at least, you know, if we are to understand that the numbers that we've been seeing and that have been adequately assessed for the last couple of decades are not just completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's huge supply chain issues. There's yeah huge intelligence issues and he's losing the information war in a way that he was absolutely not prepared to 
Right. Um, and I think that that, you know, people are like, oh, he really messed that up. He miscalculated that. Um, sure. But can we also give a win to U.S. intelligence agencies on this one? Because I think that, you know, more than that speaking to failure of Russian capabilities, I think that the Russians were actually postured to accomplish a lot of their objectives here. And part of the reason that they haven't is because um, under leadership, both in the White House, but also in the intelligence services of the U.S. right now, we've actually seen a huge uh, strike against Russian information, mm-hmm. cyber, and uh, physical warfare capabilities. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I also wanted to get your um, input on, so I don't know if you, you probably did hear about the, the Russian um, strike on the Ukrainian military base um, yes. today in the, towards Poland. Um, yes, near the bit, right? Yeah, uh, it was at 35 dead and about 137 or so wounded. Um, why? It's that close to Poland. That's the that's the interesting thing. We know yes. that the things are going on with the whole MiG transfer, one of the transfer MiGs over in exchange for F-16s. But now you're targeting, you're doing airstrike cruise missile attacks um, on military facilities that necessarily are not near where the front lines are per se um but that's an open state in my opinion that is an open statement to poland um to to back off Um, the uh the facility that was struck itself was a frequent host of uh, western um uh special operations forces who helped train the ukrainian forces mm -hmm. you know western diplomats that was one of the bases that they frequently went to so it is a very big statement. It's more of a statement, I think, to the West than to Ukraine. Right. It's to say, um, you know, and it's an attempt to say, this is our fight, not yours. You are not welcome here. Um, you know, it, I mean, Russia in Ukraine, I would say not so much within its own country. I mean, Putin, as much as he's struggling right now, he is more or less holding his own inside the country and he's doing a pretty decent job of um, making sure that endeavors to uh, reach the Russian people through sanctions and mm-hmm. get them to rise up the government, those are largely starting to backfire. And I'd love to talk about that in a couple of minutes as well. Um, however, the Russian forces inside Ukraine right now are more or more or less like a rabbit badger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're cornered, they're furious, they're feral, and they're going to start lashing out in ways, I think we're going to see more and more that those forces are going to start lashing out in ways more aggressively, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're going to take more risks about uh, threatening Western projects, Western targets. You know, they killed an American journalist, yeah. I believe it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to start pulling the gloves off in a way that they had sort of already started to, but I think that that's going to get worse. Right. Um, I think that Putin in, in particular as well, you know, they don't have the resources to fight a guerrilla warfare, and they're well aware of this. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, but if they continue trying to fight that guerrilla warfare, it's going to make it easier, um, you know, as more and more images get back home. I mean, if you look at uh, Russia and Afghanistan, that was, you know, something that contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Putin, having lived through that and been intimately connected to that as uh, an intelligence officer in Dresden when it happened, uh, I think that he's well aware of that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at this point, he knows if he doesn't end this war in a way that is favorable to him quickly, that's going to have consequences for him at home with the Silovicki. Maybe not right away, but, you know, there's an opportunity for the West right now to get involved in, uh, you know, not to use the R word here, but regime change in mm-hmm. Russia. It could have, this is a point now where it could happen in a way that it couldn't have 10 years ago. Right. Um, 
And it's an opportunity. I think Putin knows that that's an opportunity for the West to do that. And so he wants to end the situation in Ukraine as quickly as possible. Which that's won't why be the we're case. seeing. Sorry? Which won't be the case. It won't yeah, be. Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think that what he wants to do is just, you know, pound, pound, it, is, pound it into submission, mm-hmm. um, pound the country into submission. And that's why we're seeing these reports of, you know, threats about chemical attack. We've already seen reports of Russians using cluster munitions and thermobaric mm-hmm. weapons, which are, you know, the closest to um, nuclear weapons in a conventional sense that you can right. really get in terms of explosive power. Um, I think that he, you know, this is something that has particularly concerned me, and I wanted to talk about it for a couple of weeks now. Um, in fact, part of the big reason that I've been, um, you know, that I really, really wanted to come back on again um, so soon was to talk specifically about the message he's pushing back home to the Russians within their mm-hmm. propaganda, because much of the Russian propaganda you see at home doesn't end up getting exported, and you know, you end up seeing getting touted by people on the left and the right. There's one thing that you're not seeing getting exported, and I think that it's very, very chilling. And that is the idea that Ukraine wants to acquire and use nuclear weapons against Russia. Right. Um, when you have that narrative in Russia, you can suddenly justify to the people that this country that many of them saw as, you know, a partner or a brother or like a, a heraldic sibling or something, suddenly you can justify dropping a couple tactical nuclear bombs on this country. And if the West hasn't stepped in for thermobaric bombs, if the West isn't going to step in for chemical weapons, if the West isn't stepping in for a base run the border getting bombed, will the West step in for a you know tactical nuclear weapon landing on Kiev if the radiation isn't going to spread outside of the country in a meaningful way? Um, and mm-hmm. they have weapons that can do that. They have the means to deliver them. Many of them are in theater right now, ready to go. Um, you know, they're working on getting the Belarusian forces in. Uh, I think probably because Putin would prefer that the Belarusian forces were the ones cleaning up the mess right now with some help from the Chechens rather than his own. I mean, mm-hmm. he wants to keep most of his professional soldiers on reserve right now, I think, uh, out of concern that this war could escalate. He wants to be able to defend his homeland. He wants to be able to defend Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, or not defend Russia, but defend himself inside of Russia. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, you can really see that sort of jump out by the fact that he used his personal National Guard to arrest the folks in the FSB, rather than using um, other elements within the FSB or Sober or Oman. I mean, he used this personal unit, which he only created about a decade ago, mm-hmm. and most of whom are handpicked and hand-selected by the Kremlin to serve as his protective staff. He sent them to arrest this guy in the FSB. And if that doesn't speak volumes about how he is starting to lock down things inside of Russia, I don't know what will. Right. No, um, we can we can uh, take let's say about ten more minutes um, to talk about um, the, the allegations for essentially trying to utilize uh, a false flag of like bio, um, you know, weapons or bio labs in, in Ukraine as yes. Um, a pretext to then kind of try to, I guess, skew um, public opinion, I guess, um, in Russia towards, I guess, Putin um, to further validate the usage of much more dangerous weaponry um, into Ukraine, to, as you stated, you know, force them, pound them into submission um, yes. to adhere to his terms. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen since the start of this that Ukrainians aren't going to give up. Um, I know a few days ago I think it was a Russian Air Force official or something like that where 
he went um, on record basically saying he doesn't understand why Russia will try to conduct a conventional seizing of Kiev. It's a literal, that's like, you know, back in the olden days of like Sun Tzu trying to send an army through a, through a valley and knowing that enemies are on two sides of the valleys and you're, you're essentially, you're stuck. Um, that's like, that's a, a no man's land in World War One where you know you dare not to leave a trench because you know at that time you're either getting targeted by mustard gas or you're going to get destroyed by artillery shells or a long-range uh, rifle so yeah. you know having these um whether it's russian military officials or even members of the russian intelligentsia um coming out with their clear frustrations and confusion as to why is this going on where there's literally no strategic value that could essentially um, be obtained at this point in time. I mean, Russia is essentially being systematically, economically isolated from the world. Um, then more ways where it's not necessarily impacting Putin himself, but it's impacting the day-to-day -day activities and lives of the average Russians. Now, granted, um, we said this on a few podcasts ago that the modern sanction goes back to the days of Woodrow Wilson, where essentially he essentially said that you know, the economic sanction. A sanction, I should say, is essentially akin to a nuclear option if it's fully implemented by all existing major economic parties. And we're seeing this now um, that economic nuclear option. Um, and, you know, Putin tried to say that, you know, the economic sanctions is essentially the West declaring war on Russia. Uh, you know, he tried to, you know, Russia tried to do a cyber hack on Starlink, didn't have, didn't work. Um, and we kind of see the continuation of um, Russian pushes into southern and southeastern Ukraine, primarily Odessa, Odessa being uh, a next prime target. Um, but all in all, with these allegations of essentially these false fag operations, like you said, trying to bring Belarus more into this, you know, Russia did a, an, an airstrike in Belarus right. um, to it's then crazy. try to say the Ukrainians did it. And you're like, no, no. No, that's not true, sir. Yeah. Um, so going with these allegations, um, you know, I'm just curious to hear your your thoughts, and then kind of we can end it with kind of the situation of what's going on inside Ukraine, uh, not Ukraine, inside Russia. Yes. Um, and then I think that would be a good a good um, exit point. Absolutely. For that. So go ahead, Forger. Um, so first of all, to talk about those allegations, um, I think that. Uh, and this is part of the reason that I, you know, while I do not necessarily fully 100% gung-ho support a no-fly zone, I think that it's something that really seriously should be looked at as an option. And I think that too many people are looking at the situation as, you know, Russia planning to planning to fight a guerrilla war. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about planning to fight a guerrilla war. They do not want to. They do not have the resources to. As you said, it would get bogged down. It would get violent. Putin knows this, you know, as stupid as he's being right now. He's not a total moron. Um, but... I think that, you know, at this point, the plan is not the strategic objective of Kiev. The plan is absolute devastation. Um, you know, the plan is the absolution of the Ukrainian people um, in fire. Um, and Putin wants to see Zelensky, who is now becoming everything that he wanted to be, uh, destroyed, you know? Um, I mean, he, he wants that twink obliterated, um, and he's going to do whatever it takes to do that. Um, He's sending Chechens after this guy. It's not working. He sent Wagner after this guy. And incidentally, after the guys from Forward Observations Group, who 
you know, badass of them to be in Ukraine, sharing the Ukraine, their location and saying, come at me, bro, to Wagner. Um, and, you know, he, he sent everybody after, or not everybody, he sent a lot of, he sent his own special forces against uh, Zelensky. He sent um, strikes. And I think that his eventual goal, you know, he's working up to uh, be able to justify to the Russian people, um, you know, we, we had no choice. And I think that whether it's a chemical, biological, or nuclear threat, and right now he's putting all those on the table. I mean, the Russians are allegedly working to manufacture potential false flags at nuclear facilities that they've captured. They're working to uh, facilitate false chemical attacks uh, because they've uh, allegedly they've been working on shipping of materials that they can use to do that. And they've been, you know, raising these discussions. Um, they've been raising these issues saying that the U.S. has these bioweapons labs. So they've now established like established the whole CRBM equation for uh, Ukraine. Any of these weapons is a possibility they could say is a false flag coming from Ukraine that they could then, you know, in, in their own doctrine, they can justify use of any of these weapons in a way that's going to affect Russian troops as an escalation to the point that they would be willing to use tactical nuclear weapons. And that is, I mean, you know, quite literally, that is their nuclear option. I mean, Putin wants to end this war. He wants to end it on a note that has him as the clear winner. And Ukraine is the clear loser. He is not going to balk on, you know, these talks to, uh, you know, any of the times that they've spoken to the Ukrainians and said, uh, you know, here are our conditions. Demilitarization of the country, never joining NATO, you give up all your weapons. Um, you know, he's not going to, and you recognize the LPR and TPR region as Russian. I mean, he's, he's not going to give up. Um, and it's only going to get worse. Um, I think that part of why we really need to kind of step in right now and say, you know, we are not going to let this happen is because, you know, I mean, he's, we're, we're not looking at a long-term opportunity for a long-term conflict and a guerrilla war that we can just keep sending weapons into. You know, mm -hmm. Putin is not going to let... I, I think that within the extent that he's able to, he's not going to let this become a long, drawn-out war that's going to eventually unseat him. If he sees that this war is starting to threaten his power at home, um, he is going. He's going to turn the key to the extent that he's able to, and he is going to obliterate anything in Ukraine that he thinks will get whoever is left over to beg to be let live. Mm -hmm. No, that makes um, sense. And I, I mean, and you can extend that obliteration to even Russia itself. I mean, if any anybody, any and all people within Russia that looks to that appears um, to be. As part of that, you know, Ukrainian sympathizing or yes. um, anything that is against his current mindset, you yeah. are I mean, he's, in charge of. He's, I've, I've spoken to people uh, from a couple of different um, you know, walks of life who are inside Russia right now who've been talking about what it's like for them. Um, it's, you know, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I, I, I heard one story where there was a, a woman with her son who has a type of cancer and been trying for years to get the chance to fly to New York to get treatment. And his flight was actually turned around because they were no longer accepting flights from Russian planes. He brought back to Moscow and they were unable to get a ticket. Um, you know, that's, you know, that was one story of dozens of people who were trying to get out of the country. Their bank accounts are being frozen so they can't buy tickets. Um, their social media is being frozen so they can't protest. Their, they can't organize. Their phones are being looked at. Uh, Russian police and military are coming to their homes searching them, accusing them of terrorism, arresting them, you know, you can get 15 years or you can, you know, potentially just get taken out back and killed for this kind of thing. I mean, that's the thing that people aren't really talking about yet is they, the Russian people who are protesting and who are trying to stand up, they're being arrested and beaten and sometimes killed in the thousands. Yep. Um, 
And eventually, you know, you, you can't, you know, even if most people disagree with the war, which I think most people do disagree with the war, uh, you can't keep sending people by the thousands each day who are civilians, who are untrained, and then have them go out, you know, fight against a regime that wants to do this, and then have them go home, log on to the internet, and see, oh, the whole world hates the Russians, the whole world is going to ban the Bolshoi, the world is going to, you know, block out Russian media, no more McDonald's for you. I mean, it's, it's these little things, it's these acts that, like, so many businesses are getting on and saying, we're helping. It's like, well, no, you're putting the Russian people into a siege mentality. Yeah. And if they're continuing to, you know, if the messaging that they're getting from the outside world is, we hate you for this, and the message they're getting from Putin is, the world hates Russians, and I have to defend you. They're going to hunker down. They're going to write out these sanctions. It's going to be the start of you know a new Cold War, except a more dangerous one because you have cyber capabilities and digital tracking capabilities now that make resistance much more difficult and much more dangerous and makes Russia a much more dangerous operating ground for intelligence operations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you also have a much more volatile leader. I mean, during the Cold War, you had uh, you know several different leaders, most of whom were answering to a committee to some extent, and if they didn't do that, they were pretty quickly overthrown. Putin, you know, there's a committee and it answers to him, um, and he assembles that committee. And sometimes he fires everyone in that committee and hires new people, and he can shift it as he pleases. People expect people within those circles do not trust each other; they only trust themselves mm -hmm. and it makes it very very difficult for them to organize without having any kind of protection mm -hmm. uh, the Russian people you know they want to be free they want to live their lives relatively unbothered by the government and they want to be patriotic about their history and their past and you know if the only option they have right now is be patriotic about their history and their past and be told that they're in a war fighting Nazis they'll take that over being told that they're getting sucked into a North Korean lifestyle and they can do nothing about it right. so really Many of the efforts that have been taken right now to try and get the Russian people to bomb or to overthrow Putin themselves are not only just kind of ludicrous, but they're primarily affecting the populace and they're making what should be an opportunity for intelligence services to just go nuts recruiting inside Russia, you know, develop some of the best networks they've had since so many people are now actually opposed to this. And I'm not just talking about like everyday Russians, I'm talking people in industry, people in um, you know, the Siloviki, people in uh, media, people who are, you know, previously would have been untouchable, who now, you know, if they can be given some modicum of protection, it would be excellent sources, excellent operations. Um, we are sort of, from, from my understanding of what's being done right now, that's not being taken advantage of the way that it could be or should be, because there's too much focus on the economic sanctions aspect of this. And that window is going to close, and when it closes, it's probably not going to open for a very, very long time. We're going to be looking at a very cold winter. Well, you definitely have given everyone here um, a lot of food for thought and an interesting discussion. We should definitely, well, I should, we will do this again so we can um, further, I guess, unpack things and recent developments and um, new sources, um, especially how, for example, yesterday, you know, Iran shot Fateh 110 missiles at our con at the American Consul Office in Erbil a day yeah. after Russian halted the nuclear um, arms deal, saying that said sanctions are getting in the way of Russo-Iranian security and economic partnerships. Um, yep. And if understanding the history of Iran's ballistic missile um, program, Russia, since the 1990s, has played a significant assistance in the um, technological and technical aspects of their ballistics, which are basically mirroring Scud C 
with the Scud BC um, missiles uh, that they've acquired from the Korean or North Koreans, uh, Syrians, um, and even Libya. But um, definitely, uh, we have more to discuss. But we're going yes. to end it there, um, yep. and we will pick this up. Um, TBD. So, All yeah, right. Thank you, Dan, I'm for coming on. To it. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll talk soon. Of course. Thank All you right. again, my friend. I'll see thank you soon. Thank you. Much peace.